Attention lovers of mysteries, I certainly count myself as one. In recent years, I've become flat-out addicted to British and Scottish mystery novels, movies, and TV shows. And the natural extension of those is a game that allows me to experience the mystery instead of just reading it or watching it. Don your own detective hat in June's Journey, a free, hidden-object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. It's set in the glitz and glamour of the Roaring Twenties, and you play as June, deciphering clues and uncovering secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. New chapters are added to the game each week, and you can personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. Download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. From Harper's Monthly Magazine, February 1867. Written by George Ward Nichols. In order to give the reader a clearer understanding of the condition of this neighborhood which could have permitted the duel, I will describe the situation at the time of which I am writing, which was late in the summer of 1865, premising that this section of the country would not today be selected as a model example of modern civilization. In southwest Missouri, there were old scores to be settled up. During the three days occupied by General Smith, who commanded the department and was on a tour of inspection in crossing the country between Rolla and Springfield, a distance of 120 miles, five men were killed or wounded in the public road. Two were murdered a short distance from Rolla, by whom we could not ascertain. Another was instantly killed and two were wounded at a meeting of a band of regulators who were in service of the state but were paid by the United States government. It should be said here that their method of regulation was slightly informal. Their war cry was a swift bullet and a short rope for returned rebels. I was informed by General Smith that during the six months preceding, not less than 4,000 returned Confederates had been summarily disposed of by shooting or hanging. This statement seems incredible, but there is the record and I have no doubt of its truth. History shows few parallels to this relentless destruction of human life in a time of peace. It can't be explained only upon the ground that, before the war, this region was inhabited by lawless people. At the outset of the rebellion, the merest suspicion of loyalty to the Union cost the Patriot his life, and thus large numbers fled the land, giving up home and every material interest. As soon as the federal armies occupied the country, these refugees returned. Once securely fixed in their old homes, they resolved that their former persecutors should not live in their midst. Revenge for the past and security for the future knotted many a nerve and sped many a deadly bullet. Wild Bill did not belong to the regulators. Indeed, he was one of the law and order party. He said, when the war closed, I buried the hatchet, and I won't fight now unless I'm put upon.
shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples, especially at this time of year when I'm getting crushed by allergies. In Arizona, we have these wonderful trees called Palo Verde trees. They have yellow flowers that look nice, but produce yellow pollen that makes me cough and sneeze and makes my eyes so itchy I almost can't stand it. Luckily for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. From Black Barrel Media, this is Legends of the Old West. I'm your host, Chris Wimmer. And this season, we're telling the story of legendary lawman and gunfighter, Wild Bill Hickok. This is episode two, Showdown in Springfield. By March of 1862, the Union Army was completing its push through southwestern Missouri. The campaign had been inaugurated in August of 1861 with the Battle of Wilson's Creek outside Springfield, Missouri. That was Bill Hickok's first taste of war, and he found the artillery barrages utterly terrifying. The Union lost the Battle of Wilson's Creek, but Federal troops continued fighting. They relentlessly pushed Confederate troops south toward Arkansas. Now, in the early spring of 1862, Hickok's Union force was trying to slam the door shut on Missouri. The Union Army had forced the Confederates out of the state, and now the Rebel Army tried to make one last stand at a place called Pea Ridge that was just inside the Arkansas border. The fighting spanned two days, March 7th and 8th, and Hickok was in the thick of it. On the first day, Hickok performed heroically as a messenger. He rode through hails of gunfire to carry dispatches. He went through four horses on that first day. Three dropped from exhaustion, and one was shot out from under him. But that first day was a struggle for the Union. Union troops were badly outnumbered. The Confederates pushed them back and attacked from the flanks and did heavy damage until the daylight faded. But the Confederate forces received critical damage as well. Former Texas Ranger and now Brigadier General Ben McCullough was killed in action. The loss of the commander had a devastating effect on his troops, but even so, they came out fighting the next day. The Union force was ready. On day two, Hickok was assigned to a unit of sharpshooters on a ridge. They poured heavy fire on the Confederates and helped slow the movement of rebel troops. The Confederates pushed hard on the Union lines and forced them out of their original positions, but ultimately, the Confederates couldn't complete the victory. They ran low on ammunition and couldn't coordinate reinforcements. The battle itself could be considered a Confederate victory, but overall, it was a victory for the Union. The Confederates could not make it back into Missouri, 
and the Union held the state, more or less, for the rest of the war. And the more or less qualifier is in there because that same year, 1862, William Quantrill organized a cavalry unit that was dubbed Quantrill's Raiders. The unit was adopted into the Confederate Army, and it would be the home of Frank and Jesse James and the Younger Brothers. And they would terrorize Missouri and Kansas for the next three years. During that same time frame and in the same region, Bill Hickok worked for the Union as a scout and possibly a spy. Because of the time period and the chaos of the war and the nature of Bill's activities, there isn't a lot of fully verifiable information about his service, but a couple stories survive. In the first, he and a group of Union scouts were riding the back roads of Missouri when they spotted a cabin in a clearing. A black man worked outside, and he told them that two women were being held in the house by four Confederate guerrillas. According to the stories, Hickok drew his guns and went into the cabin by himself. He caught the four men off guard and disarmed them. But then a unit of Confederate cavalry arrived and surprised the Union scouts. A firefight erupted and the scouts wounded three cavalrymen. The cavalry fled and Hickok and the other scouts chased them. But the Confederates were too far ahead and Hickok and the other scouts couldn't catch up. In one version of the story, that's the end. Hickok and his men saved the two women and then rode away. In another version, the scouts spent the night at the cabin and then they were attacked again the next day. The Confederates forced the Union scouts and the two women to flee to a small fort. Hickok and the defenders of the fort, including one of the women, fought back waves of Confederate assaults for two hours before the rebels abandoned the effort. When Hickok rejoined his unit, it seems like he spent the next two years as a spy behind enemy lines, and then finished the war as a military policeman. And during that time, he was once again reunited with his young friend, Bill Cody, who had accidentally enlisted in the Union Army. Bill Cody's mother died late in 1863, when he was 17 years old. According to Bill, he got very drunk for a period of time. And in a drunken blackout, he joined the 7th Kansas Regiment. He had been hauling freight and doing a little bit of irregular militia fighting. But now, suddenly and surprisingly, he was a full-fledged soldier. He fought in Tennessee and Mississippi. But then late in the war, toward the end of 1864, his regiment went to Missouri, and that's where he reunited with Hickok. Hickok was winding down his time as a Union spy. It's hard to separate fact from fiction, but it's very possible that Hickok spent five months pretending he was the brother of a dead Confederate soldier. During that time, it was said he had several close calls with death, one of which was witnessed by Bill Cody. Cody claimed he was serving as a scout for his regiment in Missouri. He rode well ahead of the column and came to a lone farmhouse. A soldier in a rebel uniform sat in front of the house eating bread and drinking milk. When Cody approached, the soldier called him a little rascal. As Cody stared at the Confederate soldier, he realized it was Bill Hickok in disguise. 
Cody asked Hickok to join his unit, but Hickok refused for the moment. Hickok said he was gathering valuable information and he wanted to continue the pursuit. He passed his most recent intelligence to Cody and then returned to his spying. But later, Hickok's Confederate unit found itself in a skirmish line against Cody's Union troops near Fort Scott, Kansas. Cody said that as he watched, two men in the Confederate line leapt onto horses and galloped toward the Union line in a frantic rush. Cody said hundreds of shots were fired at the pair. The other man was killed, but Bill Hickok survived. After that daring feat, Hickok was back with the Union for the rest of the war. He and Cody spent time together scouting, which led them to spending time together in Springfield, Missouri, a town that would figure prominently into the legend of Wild Bill Hickok right after the war. Through the end of 1864 and the spring of 1865, Hickok was with the Union Army that marched all over Kansas and Missouri. Decisive battles in October 1864 spelled doom for Confederate forces in the area. Hickok played a crucial role as a spy before one battle, reporting enemy movements that helped his commander formulate a plan of attack. In another, Colonel Frederick Benteen helped lead cavalry troops that dealt a crushing blow to the Confederates and forced them to retreat all the way to Texas. That was just a couple years before Benteen joined the new 7th Cavalry, and 12 years before he and some of that regiment found themselves trapped on a hill above the Little Bighorn River in southern Montana. As the war drew down in the spring of 1865, Hickok was probably splitting time as a scout, a spy, and a military policeman. But his final role was that of messenger. On April 9, 1865, Confederate General Robert E. Lee surrendered the Confederate force known as the Army of Northern Virginia. With Lee's surrender, the war was all but over. And as the news spread west, a young man who was part of a wagon train in Kansas saw a rider gallop past him shouting, Lee's surrendered. The rider with the long hair was, of course, Bill Hickok, and he raced toward a nearby fort to deliver the news to Union soldiers. The conflict that had ripped the nation apart for four years was finally done. Over the next couple months, hundreds of thousands of men in uniform returned home to try to restart their lives. In the South, many soldiers realized they had no homes to return to. In some places, the devastation was total. And even if it wasn't, the experience of war made it difficult to go back to mundane chores like farming or working in shops or banks. Many former soldiers, both Union and Confederate, drifted west in search of something. Many didn't know what they were searching for, they just knew they couldn't go back to their old lives. Two such young men were Bill Hickok and Davis Tutt. Hickok was a Union man, and Tut was a Confederate. They both ended up in Springfield, Missouri, and against the odds, they became friends. The old Civil War rivalry didn't seem to matter, but the friendship didn't last long. By July of 1865, they found themselves standing in the middle of the street, about to decide which one was faster with a gun.
Davis Tutt was from Yellville in Marion County, Arkansas, and his family was on one side of the family feud known as the Tutt-Everett Feud, or the Marion County War. Throughout the 1840s, dozens of people were killed in shootouts and ambushes, just like in the famous feuds that were starting to heat up in Kentucky. The feud ended when Davis Tutt's father was ambushed and shot and died a few days later. Davis was about 14 years old when his father died. And then 12 years later, in 1862, he joined the Arkansas Infantry and fought through the end of the war. By early summer 1865, Davis Tutt and Bill Hickok were in Springfield, and they became friends through a shared love of gambling. They both carried two guns, and pretty soon, they prowled Springfield together nearly every day. For the record, at this point in Bill's life, he carried two 36-caliber Navy Colts. He also kept a Derringer in his pocket and a Bowie knife on his belt. As the friendship between Tut and Hickok developed, Hickok was also managing a relationship with one of the young women he'd rescued from the cabin a couple years earlier. She was sweet on Bill, but apparently she wanted more than he was willing to give. Bill had just turned 28, and he wasn't ready to settle down. So she shifted her affections to Davis Tut, and the friendship between Tut and Hickok began to fall apart. It wasn't entirely because of the new romance, but that was probably a decent part. Soon, Tut refused to play in the same card game as Hickok. Then, Tut started bankrolling other players to try to clean Hickok out. Unfortunately for Tut, the scheme didn't work. Bill won more than he lost, and now Tut was losing money in his own card games and games he wasn't even in. The tension between the two men rose, and then Tut pushed it over the top. Tut confronted Hickok in the Lion House Hotel. Hickok was playing cards, and Tut said Hickok owed him $40 for a deal on a horse. Hickok took out his recent winnings and gave Tut $40 right on the spot. Then Tut said Hickok owed him an additional $35. At that point, Hickok balked. He said he might owe an additional $25 at most. As the two men argued over the discrepancy, Tut grabbed Hickok's gold pocket watch off the table. Tut told Hickok he would return the watch when the full debt was paid, and then he walked out of the hotel. The next day, July 21st, Tut strolled the streets and displayed Hickok's pocket watch for all to see. Hickok confronted Tut in the town square, but he showed restraint. Hickok tried to reason with Tut, and their argument over money reignited. But that moment turned out to be the calm before the storm. A mutual friend stepped in to try to resolve the matter, but Tut still insisted Hickok owed him the higher dollar amount. Instead of pulling their guns, they went to a saloon and had a drink, but the problem wasn't solved. The two men went their separate ways, with the bad blood simmering and ready to boil. That evening, a few minutes before six o'clock, it boiled over. Tut was back in the town square, parading Hickok's watch like a trophy. Hickok entered the town square from the opposite direction. He already had a navy colt in his right hand. Bystanders rushed out of the town square 
and hurried for shelter in the surrounding buildings. Now, it was just Davis Tut on one end of the square and Bill Hickok on the other. They were separated by about a hundred feet, and Hickok issued an ultimatum. He said, Dave, here I am. Don't you come across here with that watch. Hickok put his pistol in his holster as one final signal that they could resolve this without shooting. But Tut dropped his hand to the butt of his gun and turned sideways, a clear sign that he intended to draw. Tut started to pull his pistol, but he was no match for Hickok. Bill's Colt was out in a flash, and he rested it on his left arm for balance and fired. The bullet slammed into Tut's ribcage. He cried out, then staggered toward the courthouse. He made it to the porch, but then veered back into the street. He collapsed into the dust and died before he hit the ground. The people near the town square of Springfield, Missouri, had just witnessed the first recorded quick-draw gunfight in the history of the American West. Wild Bill Hickok was arrested three days after the shootout. He went to trial in early August and was found not guilty of murder. And over the course of the two weeks between the gunfight and the acquittal, the story of the fight spread like wildfire. The legend of Wild Bill took an enormous step forward. He was already a recognizable figure. At six foot one in height, he was five or six inches taller than the average man at the time. He was a fancy dresser and carried twin Navy Colts. He was impossible to miss, and now he was a proven gunfighter, or shootist in the parlance of the times. His fame spread through word of mouth, and he was about to get a big boost from a former Union Army colonel named George Ward Nichols. Nichols arrived in Springfield later that summer and interviewed Hickok extensively for the article that turned Wild Bill into a household name. The story appeared in Harper's Monthly Magazine, but it took a long time to get published. In the interval, Bill went back to being a scout for the Army. First, he ran for the job of town marshal in Springfield, but he lost. Davis Tut had lots of friends in town, and not everyone agreed with Hickok's actions. Bill had basically worn out his welcome. But his old army commander threw him a lifeline. The man was now a U.S. marshal in Kansas, and he hired Hickok as a deputy. Bill's job was to scour the frontier for soldiers who deserted the army or embezzled money or stole horses. In between jobs, he acted as a guide for some of the top brass in the reunited United States Army. He led General William Tecumseh Sherman's group as it toured the West. He guided General John Pope's party down to Santa Fe. And then he met Lieutenant Colonel George Armstrong Custer in August 1866. The famous boy general had just been named second in command of the new 7th Cavalry that was headquartered at Hickok's home base of Fort Riley. Hickok made an immediate impression on both Custer and his wife Libby. And along the way, Bill leaned into his reputation as a quick-draw artist and an exceptional marksman. He put on shooting exhibitions where he dazzled audiences by hitting playing cards and coins and cans that were tossed in the air. 
Sometimes the crowd marveled at his speed. Sometimes it was his accuracy. Sometimes both. They always left satisfied. And then in late January or early February 1867, the big article about Bill was printed in Harper's Magazine. He was now famous nationwide, though the amount of truth in the story was questioned even then. Lots of people laughed at it and viewed it with skepticism, but it made Hickok famous either way. And a few months later, a follow-up article appeared in the New York Herald. His fame grew even more, and so did the target on his back. For the rest of his life, Bill had to be on guard against glory seekers, men with guns who wanted to gain a reputation by killing the most famous gunfighter in America. Maybe that was what caused the shootout in Jefferson City, Nebraska in December 1867. Or maybe the belligerent drunks in the saloon knew Bill was a deputy U.S. Marshal. Or maybe they just didn't like the way he looked. But as Hickok traveled back to Fort Riley in the freezing weather, he stopped in Jefferson City to get warm and to have a couple whiskeys before continuing his trip. In short order, some of the patrons began to make insulting remarks as he stood at the bar. Bill ignored them. But then one man intentionally bumped Hickok while he was taking a drink. Hickok spilled his whiskey and spun around and knocked the man down with a backhand slap to the face. Bill warned the men to knock it off, but they grabbed their guns. Bill pulled his pistol with his right hand and shot the first man, but then a bullet slammed into Bill's right shoulder. He pulled his left hand gun and kept firing. He shot two more men and then turned toward the man he'd slapped. The man was getting up and Bill shot him in the jaw. Then he whirled toward the rest of the men in the bar. Everyone else kept their hands empty or dropped their guns. Bill headed for the door, experiencing the pain of a gunshot wound for the first time. Behind him, three men were dead. The only guy who survived Bill's bullets was the one who'd been shot in the jaw. Bill spent most of the winter recovering in Kansas City. When the spring of 1868 rolled around, he was back in the saddle and back on the trail with his old buddy, Bill Cody. Cody was only 22 years old, but he was already married and had been running a hotel with his wife in Leavenworth, Kansas. By contrast, Hickok was about to turn 31 and had had a few romances throughout his life, but none he considered serious. Cody had grown bored with the hotel business. His wife stayed in Leavenworth, and he headed west to return to life as a frontier scout. And by that point in his life, he had also earned his famous nickname after he spent time the previous year hunting buffalo for the Kansas Pacific Railroad. So now, Wild Bill and Buffalo Bill were on the trail together. They did some scouting and then rounded up Army deserters and took them to jail in Topeka, Kansas. After those adventures, they parted ways again, and Hickok spent the summer and fall scouting for the 10th Cavalry, the famed Buffalo Soldiers. The next year of Bill's life was full of one army adventure after another, most of which involved close calls with Cheyenne war parties. Bill had to outride warriors while delivering messages. He helped the people of a small town track down a war party that attacked a wagon train. 
but he and his posse got more than they bargained for. The 35 men had been riding for days without spotting any warriors, but as they returned to town, the warriors found them. A Cheyenne war party attacked and trapped the posse on a mesa. That night, Bill slipped out of the camp and galloped through the dark to town. He rounded up 12 men and returned at dawn to rescue the stranded posse. His group screamed and fired their rifles and convinced the Cheyenne that a cavalry unit had snuck up on them in the night. The war party fled, and the 50 men of the town made it home in one piece. Two months later, in November 1868, General Phil Sheridan, the commander of the Department of the Missouri, led a military campaign against the tribes of the Southern Plains. The campaign was a preview of the one that led to the Battle of the Little Bighorn eight years later. It was a three-pronged attack, and the most widely publicized action was the Battle of the Washita, where Custer's 7th Cavalry wiped out a Cheyenne village in Oklahoma before it nearly got overwhelmed by more than a thousand warriors. A part of the campaign that was not as well known was the near catastrophe that struck the column from Fort Lyon in southeastern Colorado. They were one of the three prongs in the overall strategy, but they got hit by snowstorms in northern New Mexico. Bill Hickok was a scout for the advance column, and Bill Cody was a scout for the main body. Hickok's men suffered badly in blinding snowstorms and freezing temperatures. Their food dwindled fast. They were near the point of starvation when Cody and a small rescue party found them. When they were saved, Hickok and Cody guided the combined force to a fort in eastern New Mexico where the column could properly recover. Hickok's career as an army scout was coming to an end, but he still had one more big adventure before he transitioned from a scout of the plains to a lawman of Kansas. In March of 1869, he was delivering messages between Fort Lyon in eastern Colorado and Fort Wallace in western Kansas. It's about 150 miles between the two forts, and one day Bill killed a buffalo and stopped to cook some of the meat. A Cheyenne war party spotted the smoke from his cook fire and headed for it. Hickok had just climbed onto his horse when he saw the warriors. He fired his rifle and hit four of them in short order, but the remaining three did not run. They attacked. One of them stabbed Bill in the leg with a lance. Hickok pulled his pistols and kept firing, but his horse went down. Hickok crashed to the ground and rolled away from the animal while he continued to fire. He hit two of the three attackers, and the third finally decided to run. Hickok hauled himself onto an Indian pony and rode toward Fort Lyon. Mercifully, he was spotted by some woodcutters right before he collapsed from exhaustion and blood loss. The men rushed him to the fort, where the doctor was able to remove part of the spear that had stabbed him, but not all of it. The man wasn't a great surgeon, and he was afraid he would rupture an artery. He recommended amputation, but Bill remembered a doctor back in Illinois who could probably do the surgery without cutting off his entire leg. So he traveled all the way home to have the rest of the spearhead removed. He was reunited with his family for the first time in 13 years. He spent the rest of March and all of April at his family's home in Troy Grove. 
but as nice as it probably was to see everyone, Bill still had a restless spirit. When he recovered, he bid goodbye to his family and headed west again. By that time, Kansas was the destination for Texas cattle, and Kansas cow towns desperately needed lawmen with steel nerves and fast guns. Bill had both, and he started his career as a lawman by cleaning up Hayes City. Next time on Legends of the Old West, Wild Bill Hickok battles outlaws in Hayes City and then moves on to Abilene, where he encounters cowboys and killers alike. That's next week on Legends of the Old West. And members of our Black Barrel Plus program don't have to wait week to week. They receive the entire season to binge all at once with no commercials. Sign up now through the link in the show notes or on our website, blackbarrelmedia.com. Memberships begin at just $5 per month. Audio editing and sound design by Dave Harrison. Original music by Rob Valier. I'm your writer, host, and producer, Chris Wimmer. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Check out our website, blackbarrelmedia.com, for more details, and join us on social media. We're at Old West Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. This show is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Please visit airwavemedia.com to check out other great shows like Ben Franklin's World, Once Upon a Crime, and many more. Thanks for listening.